You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For April 29th, 2020, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. The coronavirus shutdown has taken a huge bite out of demand for oil, and particularly for refined products like gasoline and jet fuel, as everyone has been forced to stay home. According to the International Energy Agency and others, this decline in oil demand is the greatest in history, not only for its sheer magnitude, but also for its speed. Anywhere from 25 to 35 percent of global oil demand evaporated in a matter of weeks, and demand in 2020 is forecast to drop to its lowest level since 1995. A pricing war between Saudi Arabia and Russia, plus the decline in demand, have driven oil prices down more than 60% to levels not seen since 2002. Oil prices are now effectively loss-making for many producers, which will have wide-ranging effects on the oil industry, from permanently shut-in production, to bankrupt producers, to massive industry consolidation, and enormous damage to the balance sheets of major oil-producing countries. The so-called OPEC Plus group of producers has agreed to production cuts, including U.S. producers who have engaged in the talks, but have only cut production in as much as prices have forced them to do so. And the demand outlook remains ever murky, as does the outlook for producers, the economy as a whole, and indeed the prospects for energy transition where oil products are concerned. So to help me sort out this incredibly complex picture, I asked our friend Liam Denning of Bloomberg to return to the show. Longtime listeners will recall our two-part series with Liam in episodes 66 and 67 in 2018, and will also recognize his name as possibly the most cited journalist in the show notes of this podcast. Liam has been producing some really great work on the carnage that coronavirus has wrought in the oil patch, and has written for years about the particular problems with the U.S. shale industry, so I had no doubt that he would have much to say on this topic, and indeed he did. We talked about prices, supply, demand, the outlook for the world's oil producers, and the outlook for the world. So get yourself a nice tall beverage and settle in for this one, because it's a doozy. And before we get to the interview, I should note that we recorded it just two trading days before the historic oil price crash of April 20th, so some of the prices that you'll hear us talking about might seem outdated now. But the rest of the market dynamics that we discussed will possibly be even more relevant now. And I will have more to say about the oil price crash in the postscript to this interview. Then in the news segment of this episode, we'll look at the impact on jobs that the coronavirus shutdown has had on the clean energy sector. We'll review a pretty amazing event that the shutdown brought to the power grid of India. We'll note another Trump rollback of environmental protections to benefit the coal industry. And we'll have another exciting edition of Coal Death Watch. 
Also, let me just quickly remind non-subscribers that since nearly everyone is still stuck at home, we're offering a special discount. For regular subscribers to our annual plan, we're offering the first month free. We have further reduced our standard half-priced offer for students to a mere $2 a month for the next 12 months, and we're offering 10% off any group license for companies and universities. To take advantage of any of these offers, just go to our website at energytransitionshow.com and click on the COVID-19 response button on our menu bar, or go directly to energytransitionshow.com slash c19 hyphen response. And now our interview with Liam Denning, recorded April 15th, 2020. So let's bring him back into the conversation now. Welcome back, Liam, to the Energy Transition Show. I am twice honored. <laughs> As are we all, I think. You know, I wanted to have you back on the show to talk about oil because this coronavirus shutdown has just absolutely wrecked the oil market more deeply and suddenly than I think really any previous oil market crash. And that's really saying something when history includes historical crashes like the 2008 global financial crash and 9-11. So obviously there's a lot to talk about here. So I think I want to just take a very structured approach to this and walk through it bit by bit prices, supply, demand, the outlook for recovery, and then let's see what we can figure out and what it all means for energy transition. Sure. I mean, I think you're right, Chris. It's it's unprecedented, that word that is so often overused, but the scale of demand destruction is just like nothing we've ever seen before. I mean, there's so many numbers you can throw out. The one that I've been thinking about recently is, you know, if you go back to the last crash we had, which kicked in at the end of 2014, at that time, about 500 million barrels of oil, excess oil, flowed into the storage tanks in the OECD countries, which is kind of a shorthand for how oversupplied or undersupplied the market is. That took about two years. What we're seeing now is that amount of oil flowing into inventory in the space of maybe three weeks. So the scale of the sheer kind of flooding of the market with excess oil is just unprecedented. I would add one other thing. We need to remember this is happening at the end of what we can rightly call the shale decade. This has been the single biggest decade for growth in US oil and gas production ever in the entire history of the market. So essentially we came into this crash oversupplied and now it's just been sideswiped by this. Yeah, absolutely. And we're going to talk a bit about the specific impact on the U.S. shale producers in a bit. But let's begin with prices because, you know, they influence the other factors so much. We saw just this crazy crash this last couple of months with the European benchmark price known as Brent following from $60 a barrel in late February to $25 a barrel in late March. And now it's still sort of in that 25 to 30 range. The US benchmark WTI fell from 54 to under $19 where it remains. So that's just the major benchmarks. The storage in certain markets is getting full, especially for landlocked crude. And so the prices of those crudes have been just getting absolutely destroyed because there's nowhere for it to go. In the first week of April, we saw Western Canadian Select, which is the grade of oil produced from the tar sands in Alberta, going for under $4 a barrel. Oil from the Bakken going for under $9 in Minnesota. I mean, this is just crazy stuff. In fact, recently, I saw a report yesterday that Western Canadian Select was actually going for 86 cents 
<laughs> a barrel. You know, a barrel of oil contains 5.8 million BTUs of energy. That's as much energy as a fit human can generate in about a decade of physical labor, going for 86 cents. In Alberta, it's going for under $4, and delivery costs can be more like 7 or $9 a barrel by pipeline. And so the producers are effectively losing several dollars a barrel by producing it and getting it to market. Meanwhile, gasoline prices have hit new lows for the 21st century. Back on March 23rd, Tom Kloza of the Oil Price Information Service posted on Twitter that the cost of gasoline blend stock, which is a price that refiners pay for gasoline blending components, had fallen to around 30 cents a gallon in several key U.S. regional markets. I mean, this is just insane. So what are your thoughts? Is this just a bizarre temporary market dislocation, or do you think prices could remain in the basement for a while? Well, I think it's, for starters, it's not bizarre. The market is working. I mean, this is what happens when you have a commodity suddenly run into a massive demand shock. I mean, right now, maybe a third of global demand has simply disappeared. Mm. And you can't really switch off oil production that quickly. I mean, some countries can, Saudi Arabia notably. But if you'll forgive me for the analogy what you're kind of seeing here is what might happen if the sewage outlet to your house were to suddenly back up, right? <laughs> and if we imagine your toilet bowl and sinks are the market, pretty soon those are not pleasant places to be. So that's essentially what's happened to the market. Oil is starting to back up. And, you know, you talk about the pricing, particularly in places like Western Canada. We're seeing it also in the Barkin in North Dakota. Those areas that are really at the far end of the logistical line that don't have easy access to the global market, those are the ones that suffer first because the pipe is backing up. There's no demand, but oil is still being forced into the system. So in terms of how long these prices are going to last, I've got to say, I think it will get worse before it gets better. You know, the OPEC plus cuts that were announced recently even assuming that they really take hold and that those numbers are real, there's still too much oil out there weighing on the market and going into inventory. And if we end up running out of space to store oil, what you can see then is prices actually go negative, certainly go into single digits. If you look at the latest International Energy Agency report, now they've obviously revised down their projections for the rest of the year, they're seeing almost 10 million barrels a day of demand come out of this market in 2020. That's equivalent to about a decade's worth of demand growth. I mean, it's just an enormous shock. What I took away from that report, it was less about the absolute numbers. It was more about the duration of the shock. So that the number to focus on was less, I think, the 25 million barrels of demand destruction in the second quarter less the 10 million barrels a day for the year as a whole. It was the roughly 3 million barrels a day of demand destruction that the IEA is forecasting for this coming December. Now, in an ordinary market, 3 million barrels a day decline in global oil demand would be a catastrophe. Yeah. In this market, it looks like recovery. That yeah. tells you how bad it'll be. And all the while, we're building up inventory we don't know when demand is coming back. We do know that this shock that's been delivered to the global economy is not the sort of thing you're going to bounce back from very quickly. And so I think we're going to be living 
with the consequences of this oversupply for quite a while. Yeah, we're going to dive into those points a little deeper in a bit. But before we move on from prices, I'm just curious, like, do you have a price projection or a target or other than, well, I think it's going to get worse before it gets better? Well, I think what you need in the immediate future is what you've got now, which is you're basically pricing for supply destruction. Very few producers can really survive at 20 to $25 oil. My guess is that price is going to go lower. As we get closer and closer to storage filling up, the prices will start to reflect that. And I'd be fairly certain we're going to head into single digits at some point in the summer. Now, In benchmark terms, you mean? Yeah, in benchmark terms. Wow. I think particularly if, for example, places like New York don't necessarily fully open back up in May, as people expect now. I always come back to the point, none of us have lived through a pandemic. We don't know how quickly this is going to go away. So my guess is prices are going to go lower to force supply to shut in. And that is happening already, but it needs to happen at a bigger scale. Now, what that means for prices at the end of the year, that is very hard to say. I don't think it will necessarily stay at single digits for a long time. But I also don't think we're going to necessarily get back to the 30s or the 40s on prices. Barring something unforeseen, such as a very rapid development of a vaccine or something like that. Yeah. All right. That makes good sense to me. And since you've pegged the price phenomenon to supply issues, let's talk about supply. The headline grabbing part of this has been the ongoing standoff between the three largest producers in the world, Saudi Arabia, which has been producing about 12 million barrels a day, Russia, which had been producing about 13 million barrels a day, and the U.S., which has been producing about 15 million barrels a day. And this is all before the shutdown. And since the total world oil supply prior to the shutdown was about 100 million barrels a day, those figures actually also serve conveniently as percentages. So Russia and Saudi Arabia had already been engaged in a price war since March 8th, before most of the world went into shutdown, and had been pumping just flat out in an effort to maintain market share. Unlike OPEC and Russia, though, which had agreed to cut production from time to time to support prices, the U.S. has never attempted to restrain its production except for when the Texas Railroad Commission, which regulates oil production in Texas, restrained output. That was only in Texas, and that hasn't happened since 1973. So I've always thought it was a bit rich, frankly, for U.S. fracking magnates like Harold Hamm of Continental Resources to be complaining that OPEC and Russia won't cut production when the U.S. has not even a mechanism to cut it. Yeah, I mean, it's particularly rich with Harold Hamm, because I don't know if your listeners remember this, but back in 2016, in the run-up to the election, he was openly asking Saudi Arabia and Russia to manipulate the market. Only that time, he wanted them to raise prices (laughs) because he was suffering, partly because he had sold off all of Continental's hedges on the assumption that prices were coming back. But ancient history at this point, obviously. (laughs) I remember that. Well, anyway, on April 9th, OPEC, Russia, and a handful of other producers did agree in principle to about a 10 million barrel a day production cut through May and June with 3.3 million barrels a day from Saudi Arabia, 2 million barrels a day from Russia, and the rest from all the other countries. And then 6 million barrels a day for the next two years until 
April 2022. But the U.S. didn't agree to any kind of cuts, claiming that the decline in demand and prices effectively limited them and would effectively cut their production anyway. So that maybe worked out okay for the frackers, but even though these would be the largest production cuts in history, the market clearly didn't think they were big enough because WTI fell more than 9% the next day, I mean, as soon as the news of the agreement was released. Well, right. I mean, there's a simple mathematical reason for that. If demand is down 25 to 35 million barrels a day, and you've only got 10 million barrels a day of cuts, and it's OPEC, so you don't necessarily believe that number entirely anyway, then the market still looks massively oversupplied. I think in terms of the US and frackers, I wouldn't say the frackers necessarily came out of this well. I mean, the fact is, the US is a very unique player in the global oil market. Unlike Saudi Arabia and Russia, it isn't a single voice. It's a collection of thousands of producers. In a way, I think some of the frackers would have liked it if the US were to adopt more of a formal approach where they apportion cuts to producers according to some regulatory fiat, which is, after all, what the Texas Railroad Commission used to do, because then that would enable particularly the weaker players among the frackers to survive a bit longer. But make no mistake, declines are coming in the US there is no mechanism for the government to force it, really. But it's happening anyway, simply because producers can't afford to run their business. I mean, if you think about before COVID-19 even showed up, and you and I have talked about this extensively before, a large part of the fracking industry wasn't really covering its costs anyway. It was covering its operating costs and that sort of thing, but not the return on capital that it needed to fund its massive drilling program. So even coming into this, there was a problem with the economic model. Now it's just been completely thrown out the window. Yeah. Well, there's no doubt that the U.S. fracking industry has taken a big hit. The latest data from EIA's drilling productivity report sees widespread production declines across all major shale basins in the country. I think I added up around 170,000 barrels a day of net production already lost between just April and May. And of course, that's because the steep decline rates of the shale wells. The minute you stop drilling new wells, the sharp declines of the older wells start causing overall production to drop off almost immediately. It's a treadmill. Yeah, it's a treadmill. And it's hard to imagine right now what it would take actually to put the frackers back into a position where production can start growing again, where they not only overcome the background decline rate of the mature wells, but continue to add new wells, especially since the debt markets have dried up for them. And you've written, I don't even know how many articles about that, about how totally reliant on fresh injections of debt capital the fracking industry is, which is why Nick Cunningham, an oil journalist who writes for oilprice.com, said this week that oil and gas production in the U.S. has actually peaked and is in decline, in his view. Yeah, I mean, certainly it's in decline. I think the big question is whether it will come back. I would be in the camp that says it does come back. Does it necessarily get back to where it was? That really depends on how demand comes back and a host of other factors. But what I think needs to happen with this industry is, you know, think about fracking over the past 10 years like a kind of a tech startup. There was an enormous grab for market share, the same way a company like 
WeWork made an enormous grab for market share. And in that sense, it worked. The US massively expanded its share of the global oil market. Making a profit on that, well, again, we had kind of a startup attitude to that too. So what we found was a lot of companies that really, when you look very closely at them, don't make economic sense. They simply don't have the scale or the right assets or, and this is a particular problem, the right governance to run these businesses properly and maintain a good relationship with their shareholders and creditors. I think what needs to happen, and it needed to happen even before COVID-19 showed up, is a massive rationalization of the US oil industry. These assets need to be put together. They need to be run by smaller head offices, smaller management teams, fewer corporate structures, and bring down the cost of essentially the overhead burden Mm. on these barrels. I mean, it was interesting for me watching recently the hearing at the Texas Railroad Commission where particularly smaller struggling producers in Texas were effectively begging the Railroad Commission to bring back pro-rationing. Why did they want to do that? Because they want the pain shared across the industry. Effectively, they want the more economically viable companies to subsidize the less economically viable ones. Now, there was a lot of opposition to this, but I think what we will probably see happen over the next couple of years is a lot of companies go bankrupt. We'll see consolidation. We'll see the assets that were really marginal even before this just drop away. People will stop producing. We'll see a big drop in US oil production, maybe two, three million barrels a day. But then I think it will begin to grow again, particularly if oil gets back above 50, 60 bucks a barrel. And so I think the role I see shale playing once we're through the acute phase of this is actually, again, setting a cap on the price of oil and the price of oil that countries like Saudi Arabia and Russia are able to sustain. Hmm. That's an interesting outlook. You know, I'm trying to remember now, exactly how much consolidation M&A activity did we see in the last crash, which I guess we would say is 2014. And I remember there were a few reasonably good-sized acquisitions then, but I think we have to assume that this wave of consolidation would just dwarf that one. Absolutely. The key difference with last time is that when oil crashed in 2014 and it hit bottom in early 2016, the best way to put this is that everyone still had a lot of hope. You know, the investor base had a lot of hope because they assumed that like every other crash, the price would come back. Things would work as normal. And in that case, we were going to go back to $100 a barrel because that's where we'd crash from. <laughs> right. Or at least somewhere well above 30 bucks, which is where it got to. <laughs> yeah. And so what that allowed for was a big influx of third-party capital. 2016, you may recall, was the single biggest year for EMP companies raising new equity of maybe perhaps any year, certainly in all the years I look back at on the Bloomberg terminal. And so that enabled companies to survive, it enabled management teams to say, you know, if an acquirer came along, they were able to say, no, thanks, we're good, we're waiting for the price to come back. I think that option is off the table this time around. 
Yeah, I agree. Well, I think one of the key metrics, obviously, here is what price will it take to keep production stable? And there are really two different prices here that get talked about a lot. There's the price that producers need to make a profit. So very simply, if it takes me $25 to produce oil from a well, I got to get 30 or whatever for it. And then the price that major exporters, including Saudi Arabia and Russia, whose budgets depend heavily on the revenues of their exports, actually need to balance those budgets. So that's more of a fiscal break-even than a production break-even. So what's your take on the supply picture from that perspective? I mean, where is production sustainable at today's roughly $30 a barrel in Brent terms, and where is it not? It's not sustainable long-term pretty much anywhere at that price. You touched upon this in the question. Yes, Saudi Arabia and Russia absolutely can keep producing oil at 30 bucks a barrel. Can their countries keep running at 30 bucks a barrel? Not ad infinitum. Consider Saudi Arabia. Saudi Aramco, just looking at its accounts, can get oil out of the ground and cover you know, the operating costs, depreciation, that sort of thing. I mean, it can do that for somewhere below 10 bucks a barrel. The country really needs more like 80 bucks a barrel in order to balance its books. I was speaking recently with Bloomberg's chief economist in the Middle East, and he points to factors like the Saudi rial's peg to the dollar. Saudi Arabia is eating into its reserves at the moment to cover the deficit on government spending. He estimated that within about four years, the Saudi Arabian peg to the dollar would be potentially in jeopardy, which would have enormous impacts. It could unleash terrible inflation within the country Mm. and political instability because we obviously have a government there that is very concentrated in the prestige of the royal family and particularly the prestige of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. And any kind of setback like that could be potentially politically destabilizing. Now, moving beyond those countries, again, the US oil industry is really not sustainable at these current price levels. Is it more sustainable if oil gets back to 50 bucks, 60 bucks? Absolutely, at a lower level and not growing at a million or two million barrels a year as it did at the height of the boom. I think regions that are really vulnerable are areas like the UK North Sea, which has been sort of fighting a losing battle against decline for a long time anyway. Canada, partly because it just does have high costs because it's mining oil sands, but also because it's logistically constrained where it is, not just by the politics of the US, but also the politics of Canada itself. And then there are potentially destabilized countries. I mean, Venezuela is the obvious example, but there's also places like Libya, there's Nigeria. It's quite easy to think of a scenario coming out of all this where the barrels that get permanently taken out of the market, yes, some are in the US, absolutely, and some are in Canada, but some may be founding members of OPEC, which is quite a remarkable development. And in some ways, I have wondered these past few years with OPEC's cuts, how much of it has really been about the kind of formal cuts that have been instituted 
and how much of the group's apparent success in supporting prices over the past few years have really been about the collapse of its own members. Yeah, and when you think about the countries that are most at risk, there's been quite a bit of chatter lately about countries like Angola, Nigeria, Colombia, where you have such an enormous dependence on oil revenues, where the economy is not sufficiently diversified, especially if the other major component of the national revenues or income comes from things like tourism, which is completely destroyed right now, right? That's right. So, yeah, I just have to wonder how many of these countries are going to survive, or their oil industries anyway. Well, I think what you're seeing, Chris, what COVID-19 is giving us is a sort of extreme version of a trend that you and I both know was kind of playing out anyway. Leaving aside the current crisis, all these countries that are dependent to some degree on oil revenues are, let's face it, facing a future where oil demand growth is tapering off, peaking and declining at some not too distant date. And therefore having to suddenly derive a huge chunk of their revenue from an oil market that is getting ever more competitive as countries like Russia, Saudi Arabia, the US, with very sharp elbows, start fighting for a bigger share of that flattening and declining market. Some of these countries essentially just don't have a model that works, a little like the frackers that we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. You know, you've built a structure on top of this oil market that the oil market itself just over time cannot support. And of course, the poster child for that is Venezuela. Exactly. Yeah. You know, Canada also strikes me as a singular case here because the in-situ production in the Alberta oil sands really can't be shut down without permanently damaging their reservoirs. And as we mentioned in our discussion of prices, at under $4 a barrel for the crude, you know, let alone 86 cents, <laughs> and a shipping cost by pipeline of $7 or something above that for waterborne or whatever, that means they currently have no choice but to keep producing and to keep losing something on the order of $3 a barrel or $5 a barrel or whatever it is for every barrel they produce. So what's Canada going to do here? They're going to shut in supply. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, that's kind of the glib short answer, but they have to. That business simply does not work at prices below 30 or 40 bucks a barrel. And by work, I mean, does not generate a return that encourages you to keep investing in it. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show.
In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. The coronavirus shutdown hasn't just affected the oil and gas industry. Even the clean energy sector is seeing large numbers of layoffs. According to a jobs report from a group of clean energy advocacy and research groups, the March layoffs eliminated all job growth realized in the clean tech sector during 2019. With roughly 3.4 million workers, or about three times more than America's fossil fuel industry, at the start of 2020, the clean energy sector could lose more than half a million jobs in the second quarter, the report said. Nine U.S. states have more than 100,000 people each working in clean energy, including California, with more than half a million such jobs, Texas, Florida, New York, Michigan, Illinois, Massachusetts, Ohio, and North Carolina. Item 2. On April 5th, Indian Prime Minister Modi called for people to switch off lights at 2100 hours and light a lamp as a show of national solidarity in the fight against COVID-19. The anticipated drop in power demand on the Indian grid was 11 gigawatts, but the actual full drop was 31 gigawatts over just 25 minutes. After the nine-minute lights out... Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XC Network.